Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrewer, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights. And this week, we're discussing the failure of Jamie Oliver's restaurant group. Nick, tell us about this failure. Tell us what happened uh, to Jamie Oliver. So, yeah, for those who, for some reason, aren't aware, Jamie Oliver is a grating TV personality and chef who was who came rose to prominence in the nineties. Great, um, I think you mean. Sorry, great. Oh, sorry, great. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, started his own chain of restaurants, Jamie's various things, Jamie's Kitchen, I think Jamie's uh, Jamie's Italian. Um, there was the one fifteen, wasn't there, which was where yeah. he was sort of taking kids who were, um, you know, sort of disadvantaged. disadvantaged and, and, uh, anyway, uh, they were big. They were big presents, you know, several. Um, 25 restaurants all in kind of flagship type locations in the middle of towns and stuff and anyway they've, they've gone out of business uh apparently thousand job losses and um uh the administrators have been called in um according to the the um tedious uh mockney twerp he was deeply saddened by the blow to his restaurant empire um, which was founded in 2002. So the, there are still three restaurants open, uh, which are um, in, I think, all in Gatwick Airport. So if you're a big fan of Jamie Oliver, don't worry. Just make sure you go to Gatwick Airport to enjoy them at their fullest. Um, I, I like no, I do like Jamie Oliver. Oh, no, good. Because I, I was going to say I don't, I don't like your tanks. I like him. I had, and actually, um, I do think he feels this, and I think he actually, um, I think he's got, uh, I think he's a good person. But anyway, go on. I had. Um, I, I I mean, the, so one of the worst meals I've ever had at uh, Jamie's Italian in Reading. And uh, I had a saltimbocca a la Romana. A now, that's not something... It's it's actually not very easy to get that badly wrong. It's basically a piece of, well, pork usually, but uh, it's supposed to be veal, but usually pork wrapped in parma hannam and sage and more or less just a sauce made with uh, the the kind of uh, meat, the pan juices. It's really straightforward and it was awful. It didn't taste of anything. I've never had a saltimbocca that I haven't enjoyed and uh, this was dreadful. So, yeah, they were bad. Doesn't that mean a sauce in your mouth? I don't I don't actually I've, even though I love the dish I've never actually looked into what it's called but yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so, anyway there we are okay, so they've so, gone out of business and I think what we're interested in is you know how can you be a big restaurant chain one minute and then the next minute just you know be out of business like what why is it hard to what what goes wrong when you scale up and uh, are there lessons we can learn about you know business in general what kinds of businesses you can and can't scale up easily right um which is interesting because some, you know, we don't often talk about your own business, Aleph Insights, but um, I think, you know, maybe we can sort of talk about that a little. Maybe you've got plans to be the Jamie Oliver of of, of analysis and decision making, or maybe I, not. I don't know where to start with how wrong that sentence was, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well, chip in. So, I mean, I mean, what are the problems of scaling up? Um, are there any other examples we can draw upon? How do you want to kick things off? Uh, well, we could perhaps put it into contrast of other restaurants which are have been successful for many, many, many years of a similar similar type. So I'm thinking uh, Prezzo, um, similar mid-range kind of Italian style restaurant. Casual dining, it's called. Casual apparently. dining, yeah, mm. and and but enormously successful. I don't know. I think they have upwards of 
40 branches in the uk uh more yeah i mean the, you're sort of the stat the the kind of um uh, pretzo zz polpo cafe rouge um that what's the other one pizza express they're ubiquitous aren't they? every town center you go to has got like you know two or three of those and they're obviously they've got they've got a hundred i think pretzo has recently had to close 90 of its restaurants um you say that they're successful. I, they're not according to the business press. Apparently, the casual dining sector is in trouble. All right. Well, hold on. So, I'm having fr- trouble framing this discussion for a moment because first, so far we're talking about restaurants and we can talk about why the casual dining sector is in trouble and that's sort of quite specific to that sector. Um, we can talk about scaling up in general. But also, I think, I think something I think is worth talking about is kind of the opposite problem, which is um, being unable to scale or being, I, this is going back to when I was a freelancer, mm. one of the issues I had was that I was just doing everything. And I'd love to have scaled up a bit, but there was a problem at the other end. So maybe one, maybe it's a sort of a foolish way to frame it, but one problem is scaling up massively, and at the other end of the scale is, is not scaling at all. And is there a sweet spot in the middle? Yeah, I think but, you're right. I mean, and I think, and, and actually it does feel a bit like, you know, business models for running something like a restaurant are a bit like walking or running in that you can kind of do one or the other, but there isn't a thing in between you can do. You know, that you you basically have to have a whole different business model if you're going to have a chain. Um, and, and you know, even though superficial, I mean, from an economic point of view, when you look at the kind of production function for a restaurant, i.e. you take some inputs, you turn them into outputs, um, you know, it, it, for the same inputs, you, you literally just replicate your restaurant. It's like a unit. If it generates profit, in theory, you just take an identical restaurant, you plonk it in Reading, and then they presto, you know, it's just you've, you've doubled your output, right? So, I mean, in terms of returns to scale, um, it is pretty linear, you know, like restaurants can scale up and down and then it's not going to make a big change. It's not like if you've got two restaurants, suddenly both restaurants become more productive or anything as such. But when you, when you uh, obviously there are sort of economies of scale that you have to start worrying about. So particularly the fact that, you know, costs of talented people are going to increase, you know, you're going to, it's going to be, you're going to run out of, um, you know, people who are, you know, suitably qualified to run restaurants, managers, particularly, you know, of restaurants are really important, and they're quite hard to find. And and obviously, with the, the first restaurant that you found, you, you, you generally, you will have a very close relationship with the staff, they'll be quite bought into it and making it successful. And of course, by the time you're on restaurant two, three, 10, mm-hmm. 100, totally different set of motivations have kicked in. And um, so, you know, there are these kind of di- the, the problems at the cost end and, re- and ingredients as well. I mean, you can't you can't, you know, quality ingredients tend to be quite scarce. Um, you know, you, you have to start buying from bulk uh, sellers and they the quality, you know, naturally the quality is going to be lower. Um, I mean, it's, it seems to me that um, two things is one, one of the let's say with his first restaurant, I don't know what it was, but let's say Jamie Oliver was super successful. I think it was 15. OK. Um, and let's say one of the reasons why he's successful was partly the reasons that you said is that there's that personal touch and you've got way more control over all sorts of factors or a closer eye on them, let's say. Um, but also similarly on the customer side, there's it's very attractive, that kind of personal service and mm. personal touch, etc. Um, and so that's one issue I can imagine, certainly with restaurants. 
Um, and I'm sure it applies to other sectors as well. But there's a second thing that you started talking about was issues facing casual dining in the UK at the mm. moment. And something is getting even more casual and like pop-uppy at the moment in the UK as I know it is elsewhere. And I would imagine that's a challenge to that kind of model. So that, that, that I don't know if we want to continue talking about the restaurant sector or if there's something you want to come well, in I with. Feel like, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's right. But I feel like I want to save structural changes for a bit later, further down the line. Well, at the moment, can't we just stick to you know slagging off restaurant chains? So let's keep. So yeah, I know. Let, let's keep on slagging them off. Um, Peter, anything? Yeah, well, on the other extreme, you have you have restaurants like McDonald's and Burger King, which were were used to be little branches or with a small number of restaurants, and have are now multinational global brands that uh, provide a service at a particular level, but have somehow mastered the approach of of massive scale um restauranteering so yeah what what how do they work i mean I, I think they work by taking a very systems approach to it and capitalizing absolutely on all the economies of scale which act in your favor so centralized production so you know the tomato the the McDonald's tomato sauce is probably made in a massive factory in the state somewhere and shipped all around the world. I think world. it's probably a tomato sauce factory in China somewhere. That's all. The whole city runs well, on it. It's probably a tomato sauce factory. I mean, I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not just some byproduct. It's not some like, weird thing like people picking tomatoes out the ground. And, no, yeah, I, no, I think. No. Well, I think McDonald's do take it seriously. They sort of quality. They, they sort of their their approach to the food. They want to make it as good a quality as they can for a certain price. Um, but they but they standardize everything. So you know the the eggs are totally standard anywhere in the world where they're sourced. The the customer service approach is standard as sort of a big manual, and all the employees go on a training course and earn points as they progress. Um, the management structure, all their careers are highly managed, and the, the there's a McDonald's way of doing things. And that's how it's done. They invest lots of money in research and consultancy on how to optimize all these things and they're regarded as a very good employer as i understand yeah. it so let's assume for the moment that mcdonald's is not going to fail anytime soon what is and you've mentioned a bunch of stuff there is that are the things that you've mentioned are they the difference between mcdonald's and jamie's uh, i think group? they i think they are because i think jamie uh uh i think they attempted to try to replicate this this personal experience nice small restaurant feel and that's expensive because you need you need more motivated staff. You need you need to you need more staff. You can't sort of systematize everything, so it's all on a script. Um, which all of these th- those all, all those things give you economies of scale in terms of savings. Um, so I think it's I think that's the difficult bit is the the, the unscalable bit in the hum, is the human interaction bit is that having any kind of relationship with but with I, but your... I think also the type of food I mean there's something about a cheeseburger or an egg McMuffin which makes it very easy to systematize True. you know yeah. it's made of lots of identically sized components they can be cooked for exactly the right amount of time you know but if you want to cook if a piece every piece of chicken is different every steak is different every piece of saltimbocca is different and you're going to need to have someone who knows what they're doing. Mm. They just need skills that you don't need to cook a cheeseburger. If there's any um, restaurants out there need business consultants, operations consultants, I mean, I, I, they should know where to come. I think you guys are nailing it. Um, but <laughs> um, not, that I'm, not that I'm an expert in this area. The, the, and I th- but I think it's also an argument to be made that McDonald's actually is operating in a totally different market. I mean, I just it's not even substitutable for the kind of thing you want to do um, I mean, I can see at the margins it would be like, you know, that if you've got a bunch of kids with you and you want to go and get something to eat 
you know, certainly if you're middle class, you would w want to go to Prezzo or whatever. You know, Zizi. That's the first thing. It's so you can't can't just take them to a nice restaurant, but you can take them to a Zizi. It doesn't matter as much if they mess things up, and the staff will give them crayons. <clears throat> you know, that's that's the the sort of that's one of the advantages of those things. And I think you know what what Peter was talking about this kind of the maintenance of homogeneity across a large chain. Uh, actually is the really the key selling point. I mean, why is one McDonald's, the, why has it got the same branding as another McDonald's? Why do they want to have the same branding everywhere? It's so that people, people because people will pay for predictability. People want predictability. And I have to say, to my shame, to my eternal shame, I have done that once uh, with a former girlfriend of mine. I was in Italy and um, we uh, were really skinned and we had, we our Italian was very bad and we were in this very small town which happened had a McDonald's and no doubt lots of fantastic Italian restaurants. But they were actually pretty intimidating. This was before the internet. You couldn't just look up where the good places were. So we, we ate at McDonald's. You be in careful. Italy. If you want, I can edit that out later. Otherwise, I, you're, gonna, you're gonna get thrown out of North London. I, 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 the the honesty. I'm, I want. I think it, you know. I'm. I'm proud of my honesty and transparency. <laughs> so I, I don't mind if it stays in. But as I said, I am ashamed of it. I certainly right do so. that today. But yeah. um, okay. So where do we go? Uh, we've sort of. You know, have we nailed what's gone wrong with the with uh, scaling up restaurants? Uh, do you want to talk more about restaurants? Do you want to move on? Well, I think the. Um, we there is this well <clears throat> so i was trying to look at what the data might tell us about how scale works with restaurants like would you you can kind of look at the distribution of uh how many restaurants um that there ought to be you know if they worked in a certain way so if scaling was kind of uniformly easy so if it was just as easy to go from two to three as it was to go from one to two and likewise you know if it was just as easy to go from 100 to 200 as it was from, to go from 200 to 300 you would uh, expect to see uh, broadly a, an exponential distribution uh, of the numbers of branches that a restaurant has <clears throat> which means you know you'd get uh, sort of you 10% less let's say every hundred <coughs> um, so in other words, there'll be kind of 10% fewer restaurants with, you know, 200 as there were with 100 and 10% fewer with 300 as there were with 200 and so on. But you don't get that at all. You get you get far fewer large restaurants than if that was true, which suggests that, yes, it is. So they're, they're distributed more or less on a power law uh, without going into the stats. The point is that what that suggests is that basically um, it is uh, harder to scale up then you know you you can get you, you you there are a lot more people stuck at a, sm a small size um which suggests that scaling up is easier the smaller you are and becomes kind of harder of as you as yeah. you get bigger so um <clears throat> yeah okay. yeah so so i'm just i think the data support what the kind of business press says which is that i mean restaurants are a very actually a very difficult thing to scale and you say partly the reason you mentioned it earlier about trying to go from one of you to two of you when you're freelancing restaurant profit margins are very low there's something like five five percent or something in the uk um which means you can't really ever get the finance to expand if you were just gonna if you were just gonna rely on profits to expand um, then you know it would take you it would take you ten years to get enough money to start a new restaurant, which is why you need to borrow to expand. Well, if you're going to borrow to expand, you might as well borrow to expand to five or ten or twenty restaurants. And the thought is that 
private equity has been encouraging too many people to expand too much. So we've been kind of um, awash with mm. Byron and and ZZ and um, you know, and and so that's that's one of the one of the uh, purported causes. I'm surprised, for the I'm surprised so much. So many private investors have jumped <laughs> on that bandwagon, given that the expected return is only going to be five percent at most. I guess they think they can spot the the ones that are going to grow big and mm. be very successful. Cause, so you there know, must like, be a short term thing because they 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 don't stick around forever. You know, restaurants that aren't popular forever are they? they don't. That, well, I was looking at what one of the one of these investors was saying, and and uh, it was very much that. It's like I I don't want to invest in something fashionable. You know, it's, you've got to think: is this going to still gonna, is this still going to be attractive in five, ten, twenty years time? Mm. Um, yeah um is byron still going by the way didn't they get into trouble as well i think they've had to close some restaurants or am i thinking of gourmet burger kitchen i I, there's lots of them aren't they yeah byron burger is really good actually i i Um, agree but again you know do we need one do we need every other shop to be a byron burger yes (laughs) (laughs) or a mcdonald's one or the other um peter anything to come in on uh, well, yeah, it might be more. It might be interesting to extend it to other businesses as well. Yeah, I did absolutely. A, did, I did a bit of a bit of stats looking at, and uh, the uh, there's a similar trend in um, just general business. However, there's a, the, there's a quite there's a spike at the top end for business in terms of the number of employees that they have and their and their turnover. So there's a sort of lull in the middle. So it, this would imply that for wider businesses, it's easy to be very small. And it's it's easy to be big because they're, they're still, they're, they exist, but quite difficult to maintain a medium size. You either you're forced in, onto one end or the other, um, and I think that's uh, sorry. What are some of the sectors you were looking at? So this was all sectors, <laughs> right? So this was all all sectors for uh, fi- you know finance, defence, etc. Just all this was top level stats from ONS, um, and and I think there's a couple of trends there which sort of force that. To, to, to be like that one being uh, that a model for growth is uh, for big companies is a sort of merge, mergers, mergers and acquisitions model so you grow through swallowing up small companies rather than inherently growing your own capability so you, you, you want to get into a new market uh, and rather than developing your own in, in-house capability you'll find pro- profitable looking companies and, and buy them um, so that uh, so you so the, the companies tend to coalesce into large large lumps, mm. um, and uh, I think uh, also that there's a uh, investors tend to want stability. They want they want things that are, they they want uh, they want a, a simpler, more legible portfolio. So large companies are a, a good bet uh, uh, than than lots of small companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so you, sorry, or, or you, you either you, you you either want large companies rather than medium-sized companies because they're more stable, more likely to, to give you give you guaranteed returns, or you want or you're on that kind of end of investment where you're an angel investor or a, uh, you want you want to take a small company and 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 grow it to a point where it can be sold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the, there's sort of two two type things. But the the the, mer- the I, I've never something that I've never really understood is how this mergers and acquisition model actually works. To me, it sounds like a pyramid scheme um, that eventually you're going to run out of things to buy and it's going to fall over. You can't attract any more investment to buy more businesses. Uh, so why do large businesses just sort of naturally fall over? Well, I was interested in uh, I was looking at uh, in a little bit of detail at the case of Lions Tea Shops. 
You'll remember those, Fraser. I do indeed. Because um, you're... Because you, as we know, your dad was a Victorian, so you you yes. must have grown up in the thirties. <laughs> um, the uh, they were everywhere, <clears throat> everywhere by the standards of sort of the you know the the early twentieth century. Anyway, um, they were in the nineteen twenties the largest food producer in Europe. Um, they had hotels, coffee, ice uh, tea, tea. They sold ice cream. Uh, 250 tea rooms in Britain in 1939, which I gather was the height of their their power. 40,000 employees. The first ever business computer uh, in Britain, which was the Lions Electronic Office, wow. was uh, was made by their computing arm. And they used it. They were the first company to have a computer to sort of do stuff, you know, to do kind of sales forecasts and logistics and stuff. You know, so they weren't they weren't they well, it's not like they weren't innovators. Um they were the people who licensed the Wimpy chain, the first proper sort of chain of burger bars in Britain. Um, so they 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 uh, uh, they were pioneering in in that trend, you know, in the nineteen fifties, sixties. Margaret Thatcher worked for Lyons as a chemist before becoming an MP. They were huge, and yet they're you know Valar Morghulis, as they say in Game of Thrones. It, you know, did, did just what all of that. Well, they they people stopped buying their things <laughs> like it's what goes wrong with all businesses but the interesting thing was how actually all of the bits of them kind of got sold off you know um so they they you know their corner houses which were the which were the flagship shops they, which didn't close till 1977 and in fact the last tea shop uh was open till 1981 and the company itself didn't actually formally stop operating till 1998 but all of the bits of it like their you know i think their um uh, ice cream thing got sold off to walls and you know allied breweries bought the rest of the bought the kind of property in 1978 and um electronic the electronic office the computing arm was sold to someone else and so bits of it have ended up all over the place but um so it didn't never really fail no then. that's yeah. the interesting thing and i and i i just wonder if i mean actually that's that's often how these big companies disappear isn't it as peter was saying there's a sort of bits of them get get bought by people and eventually it's sort of is 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 there one day and gone and gone the next but the yeah lines i was sort of a bit nostalgic about lines it was a really sort of hugely thriving kind of british almost the kind of british equivalent of mcdonald's or something you know they were everywhere and and you would have said the same as you said earlier you know we can't see mcdonald's going anywhere soon but they in a very short space of time lines went from totally ubiquitous to to completely disappeared there is still a wimpy in welling if you'd like to is there? come over yeah do they have the bender sausage burger i don't i've never been in i've never been in there actually. I don't think I've... well i've got nostalgia i used to go to the wimpy uh, in Frensby park with my dad uh, every time he looked after me, so I've, bit, I've got a nostalgic feeling about Wimpy. I, it was I liked they they had this very cheap tomato sauce. It was really vinegary, which I loved. Um, um, okay, well, actually, that sort of brings us nicely. I think we've sort of we've we've covered all, that all off quite nicely. Uh, but it brings me on to something I want to talk about. Sort of talking about nostalgia. Um, Earlier on, you were mentioning a, a terrible meal that you had mm. at uh, one of Italian, uh, James Italian restaurants. I want you to think: um, what is the worst meal that you've ever paid for um, in a restaurant? And yeah, it has to be in a restaurant. Uh, but also, another challenge for you: can you think of the best meal that you've ever had as well? Um, so that is what I would like to talk about. If that makes sense. That sounds yeah. good. Yeah, uh, I can. Yeah, okay, sorry. Go go, now you kick. You kick off. Go no, on. no, no, no. I because I've 
I want I want you to go first. You were going. All right. To... I think I think maybe this just sticks in my mind because it was recent. But um, last year, as we were getting ready to fly uh, to our holidays, uh, we went to a restaurant in an airport called I think I think it was a Little Frankie's. It was it was it was one of these awful kind of almost like Ballardian nightmare situations of a a restaurant in a sodding airport pretending to be a little sort of Italian American diner, um, and the food was unspeakable. It was and uh, you know like got about 10 chips with you know what was supposed to be kind of chicken and chips and the chicken was just like their their so-called sort of buffalo chicken wings was just some but wings that had been heated up that had had a load of um frank's red hot sauce sprayed all over them it was so bad and of course it was all like you know restaurant prices like 10 12 quid for a main court it was so bad so i and i i mean you know that's a really classic example of you quantity and quality being mm. kind of locked in this uh, um you know eternal trade-off so that was yeah. also an interest you said it was in an airport yeah 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 Captive you're trapped audience. right yeah um best um well a little bit cliched really but uh probably le gavroche which was which is of course michel Roux's oh, is it? one michelin star restaurant in uh mayfair um it was perfect, really. It was like it was about seven courses or something. Each each came with a different glass of wine or sherry, and um, uh, there wasn't just nothing about it that was wrong. It was just mm. every you know like sort of and lots of different things as well. Like a, there was a souffle and you know a kind of roast lamb and um, some bloke with a violin. It was just incredible. There wasn't a bloke. Michel Roux did come out and say hello to us, which was nice of him. Um, but yes, I'd, I think it's it's just, you know, uh, to be honest, if I get, gave you an example of some fantastic restaurant I went to in Poland, which was really amazing, I'd be fibbing because that was really the best meal I've ever had. I think. Okay. Uh, Peter? Uh, so my worst meal, uh, I just got back a couple of weeks ago from a round top of Scotland cycling trip, North Coast 500. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, I can see what's this going is here. The, so it, sort of oddly, it's a, it was a one-off, it was one-off restaurant. Uh, so you know it should be good by the sort of models that we've been talking about but it was terrible so it was a hotel very nice ho- back in the day it's probably a really nice highland hotel very grand very big but the, today it's a bit like going into the hotel in the shining is it's very odd <laughs> uh there was a there was a it was it was just bizarrely odd though it was several coach loads of very old people who looked several hundred years old uh in, in, enjoying this terrible electronic keyboard tribute act uh it was, it was baffling anyway the restaurant itself um i wasn't feeling ter- i wasn't feeling terribly hungry i think i was a little bit ill or something so i i went for a vegetarian option thinking that would be the safe thing uh and i was presented with uh, a plate with this little tiny little uh looked like it come out of a box from iceland or something tart i thought well it's probably going to be edible um but it was stone cold in the middle and and fiery hot around the outside so it just hadn't been cooked right uh, uh and the, the the vegetables were all terribly wilted so i sent so i i i never do this in restaurants i'm not normally a fussy eater so i sent it back saying it's just not cooked right this is cold in the middle uh so they spent half an hour faffing around by which time everybody else had finished their meals and they brought me back another one exactly the same <laughs> so i gave up with that at that point and uh, decided to just have a pudding instead 
uh, and uh, decided to go for something super safe. So I thought I'll have I'll have the apple crumble because you can't, can't go wrong. You can't that. get that wrong. Turns out you can, right? Uh, within you know, two mouthfuls in, I found the longest, thickest, curly black hair I've ever seen oh! in my life. Uh, so at which point I just lost all appetite and decided to go and drink whiskey instead. Did you pay? No, they very they they were they were gracious. I mean, the 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 thing weird thing about the Highlands is given that they are becoming increasingly dependent on tourism and it's a potentially sort of tourist gold mine because it is a wonderful beautiful place they are not very customer centric um but this scottish that (laughs) might be part of it (laughs) but this place um you know most places you go into they they, it's like they're doing you a favor by just have by just feeding you at all but they they they, but they were gracious and they they did uh they did discount the entire bill and briefly your best brief the best uh not a particular posh place, but I'm a huge fan of the Skylon restaurant in the Festival Hall. Okay. Uh, oh, I've been in there. They do good cocktails. They do yeah. excellent cocktails. It's like having a cocktail in a James Bond set. It's And then the bar, the grill, uh, it, go, it comes and goes. I've been there a few times. The first time I went there, it was fantastic. I had the the best Chateaubriand of my life. Uh, it was helped, but I was on, I was on a quite with a quite a hot date, so that, that helped. But it was it was a love. It was a really really just wonderful meal. Perfect. Hey, I like the sound of that. That sounds good. Uh, yeah, no, very briefly with me, um, I had a meal in quite a posh restaurant in Beijing once, and the main course was um, lobster spaghetti, right? Uh, or lobster noodles. And you might think, oh, that sounds all right. But actually, the noodles were themselves were made of lobster mint. Uh-huh. Some poor lobster had, kind been, of interesting. had been kind of minced up, and its shell had been sort of artfully placed on the plate. Um but it was just all kind of lukewarmish, and it was just it was just vile. I just couldn't eat it, and each course was worse than the previous. Um, best one, again, going back to this middle-class thing, probably I went on a cycling trip with my wife years ago in the Loire Valley, and every single um, village kind of restaurant we stopped at just served perfect food from mm. heaven, accompanied by the most amazing wine. Um so yes, yeah, there we go. Yeah, the fr- crappy restaurants in France are still better than good restaurants anywhere else. Yeah, I've had some pretty ropey stuff in France as well, though. Okay, we'll end it there. Anything anyone wants to say before we close this podcast out? Okay, bon appétit. Until next time, thank you for listening. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Nick Hare and Peter Cockhill of Alpha Insights. Until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.